we don't need the Ten Commandments to show us what's righteous. God is righteous. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we continue our study of Galatians with a discussion of chapter 3, verses 15 to 19. Now, in the first 14 verses of this chapter, Paul made it unmistakably clear that seeking to obtain righteousness through law is diametrically opposed to God's true gospel. He reminded the Galatians that believers receive the Holy Spirit through faith and not by works of the law. Then he asked them, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? John 1, 3-4 says that in Jesus was the life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The life of God in us not only brings us to life, it sustains our life and transforms it as He overcomes the darkness, both within and around us. Praise God! (laughs) To abandon this gift... To seek after our own way to perfection is foolish, as Paul said, and it is certain death. True believers live by faith in God from rebirth to resurrection. In these 14 verses, Paul has already skillfully exposed several logical holes in the Judaizers' teachings. One of my favorites came in a true drop-the-mic fashion (laughs) when he pointed out the fact that Gentiles become partakers of the promised Holy Spirit through God's promises to Abraham— not through his covenant with Moses. The demands of the Judaizers were not only wrong, they also betrayed their ignorance regarding biblical history. Paul then gave both a grave warning and a gospel proclamation when he explained that all who choose to perform the works of the law will live and die by the law. But those who trust in Jesus, who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, will receive their life through the gift of the Spirit." This week, Paul will further explain his point regarding the promises of God coming to the Gentiles through Abraham as he discusses the nature of the covenants and the temporal nature of the Mosaic covenant in God's eternal plan to redeem all who are His. So join us with your Bibles, your coffee, and perhaps something to take notes with because today's passage will destroy the very foundation of Ellen G. White's great controversy worldview. But before we get started, let me remind you that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. You can also find a place to donate to the ministry if you'd like to come alongside Lamb with your financial support. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, share it with others, and please leave a review wherever you listen. So my question for you, Colleen, is... What did you think about the part in this passage that says that the law came 430 years after Abraham when you were an Adventist? I don't remember. I don't remember ever pondering that. I don't remember ever thinking about the fact that there was 430 years mentioned there. I know I've read it. And I think that what I must have done with that is just thought, oh, technicality, technicality, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was written by God's finger on stone 430 years later, but the law was eternal. We all know that, right? Mm -hmm. So that in my head, I would say the law was eternal. Otherwise, how would anybody have known how to please God? And he finally wrote it down so there could be no excuse. I think that's how I would have reasoned because I don't remember ever 
pondering that question. I never, never thought about there not being a law until 430 years after Abraham, in spite of what it says here. What about you? I don't think I actually registered the words on the page until that time I read Galatians and saw it for the first time back in 2010. I know I had read the letter for classes. I'd read it just because I needed to read the Bible and I knew that. (laughs) But I have this ability to read and be thinking about other things at the same time. And so I imagine that's kind of what was going on when I hit this portion of Galatians, because it did not jump off the page until 2010 when I needed to see it. Like you said, and like we've talked about so many times on this podcast, we had the great controversy worldview in our head and it was like guiding my interpretation of things. If I didn't understand it, well, it was just too confusing for me. If I did understand it, it's because it fit with my understanding of the great controversy worldview. The law, the 10 commandments were eternal. They started that whole war up in heaven. So (laughs) they couldn't have, you know, been brand new 430 years after Abraham. So I just was probably glazing over thinking this doesn't have application in my life right now. So I don't need to pay attention. Exactly. I'm sure that's what I was thinking too, because the great controversy worldview was paramount. It was everything. Mm -hmm. It was my filter for all reality, including last day events, politics, family. The great controversy worldview was reality for me. Mm -hmm. Nikki, why don't we read this passage? Because it turns out that this passage, even to me now, presently, is almost shocking in what it's revealing. And even though I've understood what it said about the law and taught, taught it many times in various settings talking to people... I see things in a new and deeper way, even from studying for this podcast. This is an amazing passage. So would you read that for us before we start talking through it? Yeah. So this is Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. There's things in here that seem complicated and confusing, especially given the way we understood them in the past. And Nikki, we shamelessly looked this passage up in the clear word before we started (laughs) to record. And I find that the clear word is as confusing as my memory of the passage. (laughs) Yeah. It's clearly not teaching what the passage teaches, and yet it doesn't nullify that whole idea of 430 years. So it's kind of doublespeak, Mm -hmm. and I'm not surprised that we had so much confusion about this as Adventists. Yeah. Let's just start talking through verse 15. What is the comparison right off the bat that Paul is making when he says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant? 
Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. What is this thing that he is talking about? Human relations, man's covenant. What's the it that he's talking about here? Well, he's talking about what a covenant is. Yes. One of the things I love about that is when I first started reading the New Testament and I would read the apostles begin to interpret Old Testament things and and make, you know, use examples to talk about what scripture meant. I used to feel like they were taking liberty, not realizing that the Holy Spirit has inspired them to teach this. Yes, me too. And so I would see other people in Adventism taking liberties to try to explain things, but you don't get to do that unless you're the apostle and you're inspired by God. But he's taking something that humans can understand, something rooted in our reality and in in human history. He's taking the covenant or a will and a testament. Other versions will translate it that way. And he's making a point that applies to the covenant God made. He's saying that After a covenant has been ratified, once all parties have agreed, this is the covenant, nobody goes back and starts crossing things out later. Right. (laughs) No one sets things aside. No one adds conditions to it. It's a legal document once it's ratified. You can't do that without taking proper measures. Yes. Now, to make things really clear, he is going to be talking about two different covenants in these few verses. So, when he starts in 15, in the context that we've just discussed, what covenant is he leading with? He's going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant. Exactly. Now, just for anybody who might not remember, we're going to quickly summarize that. Back in Genesis 15, after God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he made a covenant with him and promised him, in a nutshell, seed, land, and blessing. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That was the prototype of how everybody on earth has ever been saved. They believed God and acted on his word without bargaining like Eve did with the snake, without doubting, without adding to it. He just believed God, even though he had no physical reason to believe that he would have seed because his wife was barren. So then we find out in the rest of Genesis 15 that Abraham prepared the sacrificial animals and then God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And as he slept, he saw a smoking pot and a fiery furnace walk through these pieces that he had set out, these sacrificial animals, and ratified the covenant. God took Abraham out of the mix and we learn that the father and the son made this covenant among themselves. Abraham never participated, never added a promise, was not part of it. It was a unilateral promise from God, seed, land, and blessing. There was no, if you obey, I will bless. It was an unconditional covenant. And that covenant was for Abraham's seed, and he promised that the nations would be blessed through him. And that's the covenant Paul is referring to here in Galatians 3. Last week when we ended our podcast, we ended with verse 14, and it says that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He had just asked them in this letter, tell me, did you receive the Spirit through works of the law or through hearing with faith? And then he says, Gentiles are grafted in through Abraham and they receive the Spirit by faith. He answers his own question. And now he's going on to explain how that worked. Yeah. Because these Judaizers are saying, no, 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 you've got to come in through Moses. 
So he's making this point here, go all the way back and look at the covenants. Go back and see what the scriptures foresaw <laughs> right? and look at the covenants. And so we have to begin with the Abrahamic covenant. And in Adventism, it was always the Mosaic covenant, yes. which was somehow vindicating this eternal decalogue that started in eternity past. It was almost like all the years between Adam's fall and Moses, it was just assumed that people were living by that. And now yeah. Moses comes along and he's going to bring us back like a reformation. Right. He's going to bring us back to the Decalogue. And that's what the Judaizers are treating them like. You need to come in Same through message. this. Yeah. Paul's point here is God made and ratified a covenant with Abraham without any participation from Abraham, a unilateral promise from God himself. And Paul is saying, hey, you guys, you're being told you have to take the law on in order to receive the benefits of the promises God made to Abraham. And I'm telling you, think about it just from a human perspective. If you make a covenant with another human or you leave a last will and testament and you ratify it and say, this is how I want things done when I'm dead, he says, nobody has the right to come and add one thing to that covenant once it's already been ratified. You can't do that. He's saying the law was never added to the promises in Abraham. And this is a really significant argument, Nikki, because we also, as Adventists, were taught that the law was added on to the promises of Abraham. We weren't maybe taught it in those words, but we were taught that we didn't get those blessings if we didn't keep the law. Mm -hmm. We were taught this idea that there was one covenant for all time, and God had different iterations of it. He had one way of talking to Adam. He had another way of talking to Abraham. Then he gave a little more information to Moses and Israel. And we're supposed to take all this stuff and add to it and add to it and hold on to everything. And we were never explained to that covenants differ and that the covenant with Abraham was a whole different kind of covenant than the covenant with Moses. They weren't the same covenant. They weren't just different expressions of the same thing. And he's saying you can't add the covenant with Moses onto the covenant with Abraham because it's completely different. It would be like saying if I have a last will and testament or if I have a living trust, and then let's just say that my older son has one of his own, and then his children should somehow see my last will and add their dad's to mine and somehow keep all of it as one agreement. That's just crazy making. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the Bible either. They're separate covenants, and you have to treat them as separate covenants according to their own terms. And it needs to be stated again and again and again for us that the Ten Commandments are the Mosaic Covenant. They are the words of the covenant. Mm -hmm. They are not an overarching moral reality, because I think I believed that the Ten Commandments were eternal, yes. and then Abraham was added to the Ten Commandments, and then Moses was added to Abraham. And then, so if we were to start somewhere, we start with the Ten, and then add everybody, including Abraham, to the Ten. Right. That's actually how Ellen White taught things. Her worldview was that the law was in heaven, the moral law was in heaven before creation. And like you said, it triggered the jealousy and the great controversy, and that Abraham was obeying the ten. She said he's obeying God's law, the way the Adventists taught us the law. 
And by the way, I just want to point out that the way we know the Ten Commandments were the actual words of the Mosaic Covenant and not something that was older and preceded it is Exodus 34, 27 and 28, where it says that the law was written on the tables of stone, the old covenant, the covenant, the words of the covenant. And that is the definition of the core statement of the Mosaic covenant. They did not pre-exist. Now, how do we explain morality? Well, Adventists tell us morality comes from the law that the law is eternal and it expresses the moral requirements of all humanity. That's backwards. God is the source of all righteousness. I want to say righteousness instead of morality, because you can be moral without loving God, and you can be a terrible sinner and have moral behavior. All righteousness, including moral behavior, is in God himself. But Adventists make the law something that is actually over God, that somehow God himself and Jesus the Son have to keep the law because it's eternal and it's the eternal statement of righteousness. And that's just wrong. It's attributing what God wrote on stone for Israel it's attributing that created thing as being the thing that determines God's morality. And it's the other way around. We don't need the Ten Commandments to show us what's righteous. God is righteous. So when you have this worldview that the Ten Commandments are eternal, like you're describing, then you encounter this text. It's really hard to place it yes. anywhere and in, in to, to even register what on earth he's talking about. And I don't know how I was able to glaze over it and not even experience the dissonance that should have Same. I should have encountered. But the fact is, like you said, like we read in the Old Testament, the words of the covenant, it belongs to the Mosaic covenant. It was reiterated again in Hebrews chapter 9 when the author of Hebrews was describing everything that belonged to this obsolete and fading away covenant. And he specifically names the words of the covenant inside the ark yes, as being a part of that system that was fading away. And so here we have Paul explaining that just because God did something after he made those promises to Abraham, he did something else, which was actually a fulfillment of some of the promises he made to Abraham. He told them that his people were going to go into slavery and then he was going to pull them out yeah. and make them a nation. And so as he begins to do something new, that does not undo something he's already done. Very well said. Which brings us into verse 16. He has already established a covenant with Abraham, which cannot be changed. And just by the way, we all know that you can't take any kind of a legal document and add something to it if you have a covenant or a legal agreement between two parties, you can't add any terms to that unless all the people participating in the covenant agree. He's saying here, you can't add the law into the promises that were the covenant God made with Abraham. You can't do that because the father and the son did not agree to that. That had nothing to do with Abraham. We have to see them as separate. So, in 16, after he establishes that the covenant with Abraham is a done deal and cannot be added to legally, humanly, any way you want to look at it, a covenant is a sacrosanct 
item that can't be changed without the approval of all the parties. We come to 16 and he says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Now, Nikki, this might seem confusing. How do you see this now as you look at it? Because what Paul is quoting here is what is said in Genesis, that he's making this with Abraham and his seed. And we understand that Abraham was going to have seed, land, and blessing. He was going to have many offspring. God also said, your offspring will be as great as the stars in the heaven, as numerous as the sand on the sea, as unable to be numbered as the stars and the sand. And yet, he used that singular word, your seed will be. And here Paul is applying that word seed, not only to the people who would come out of Abraham, but to Christ. How do we understand that now? What jumped out to me very clearly the first time I read this and saw it is that God had the Messiah in view when he gave this covenant to Abraham. And he makes it really clear here, going all the way down to verse 19, that the Mosaic covenant was set in place 430 years after he made his covenant with Abraham until the seed would come. The seed is really important. You've got the singular and the plural, the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. It's also speaking of Christ who will come and he will change things. Yeah. So it highlighted the temporal nature of the Mosaic Covenant, which was going to come into place for only a period of time and would be set aside when the seed came. Yes. Adventism says that when Paul says he's referring to the seed and not to the multiple seeds, he is saying that the promises given to Abraham were always in view of Christ alone, that Christ alone was the one who was going to inherit those promises because he alone was going to be worthy to inherit them. He alone was going to be good enough to get them. He was going to be the one who did everything that the law said. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Jesus came and certainly fulfilled the law and never sinned. What Jesus did was not keeping the law instead of Israel keeping the law, so that we now say, okay, Abraham has promises, and Jesus is now inheriting the promises, so whoever does what Jesus does will also inherit the promises through his power. What Paul is saying is that Jesus came and did for Israel, what Israel could not do for itself. He didn't do it instead of Israel. And I think that's a huge shift in my understanding. And I think it's also a huge shift in the way some even Christians understand it. Jesus is not the person who came and replaced Israel because he was good. Jesus is the perfect Israel, perfectly fulfilling the death sentence of the law, rising from death and breaking the curse. He did that for Israel, just like he does it for the Gentiles who believe. It's not like Paul is saying, look past Israel and say, Abraham got these promises and we can see it's all happening in Jesus and that Israel is now done because Jesus has come. He's saying Jesus is making those promises accessible because he has fulfilled the curse of the law. And I think that's the point that I didn't understand as an Adventist. I thought that the law was given 
to reveal how to be righteous so we could understand and experience the promises given to Abraham. Paul is arguing the exact opposite. He is arguing that the promises to Abraham stand in spite of the law. The law came to show us that we couldn't expect those promises on our own merit. They are coming because of God. And Jesus fulfilled the law so we can inherit the promises, not so we can be good enough to realize them. So this is why when Paul tells us that the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's referring to through the seed. Yes. Through Christ, not through the Mosaic covenant. So go get circumcised and obey the Ten Commandments and keep the Sabbath so that you can be a part of these promises. Right. The Pharisees were constantly saying, we're Abraham's children. We're Abraham's children. And Paul's making it clear, Abraham's children are those who believe, those who have faith, those who have trusted in Christ, in God. And so it's completely unrelated to the Mosaic covenant. So when he says that the Gentiles received the Spirit by faith, when he answers his own question, and he says they received the promises to Abraham by faith, he's making the point that had nothing to do with the Mosaic covenant. They don't have to go through it. They don't have to go around it, under it, over it. They have no reason to be interacting with circumcision and the Ten Commandments. They're Gentiles. They're here through Abraham. And then he goes on into this next verse and explains it even further. And he said, what I'm saying is this, the law came 430 years after Abraham. In other words, nobody before Moses was ever required to keep the law. There was no law. There was sin to be sure, but there was no law. We learn in Romans 5 that he explains that death reigned from Adam until Moses, even before there was a law, but where there is no law, there is no sin imputed. But then when the law came, people were credited with their sin because the law defined their sin. So then if there was no transgression against a law that's written down, if there was no actual breaking of a rule, how come people were dying between Adam and Moses if there was no actual law? And Adventists have no answer for that because they say, oh, but there was a law. But the Bible tells us that Adam, and this is again in Romans 5, Adam sinned in one act of transgression, and his transgression was against one rule. Don't eat that fruit. And he ate that fruit. That was the law he broke. It wasn't the ten. And because he did, all of us inherit his spiritual death. And once again, Nikki, this is where Adventists have so much trouble understanding Galatians. If we don't understand that we have spirits that are born dead and must be brought to life, we have no way to understand our own sin. The only thing we can do is to define sin as entirely related to law. And that's actually how I was taught sin as an Adventist. But sin that Adam had gave us spiritual death, and our spiritual death now results in the fact that we do sins. And we'll see in this passage that Paul is going to say, then why was the law given at all? If if people were already dying, but why make the matter worse if they don't have actual transgressions unless they're breaking an actual rule? And you'll say, it was to show 
that we were sinners. It was to reveal our nature. I like what Eslos Johnson said about the law. He said, the law came in order that sin might be seen as rebellion against God. That one sentence, it made me think of judges and that constantly repeated statement that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We have this incredible way of redefining sin. And the law comes and says, no, this is what's expected. And when you sin, you sin against God. We we start with, I am the Lord your God. I have no other gods before me. And so it exposes that. And it exposes that that sinful nature that we all have, they knew they had it. Job gave sacrifices just in case his kids had sinned. But it exposes that that was rebellion against God. And that's what wasn't known. Yeah. And now we have to figure out what to do with it. And and a part of the Mosaic law was that God made uh, temporary provisions for the people of Israel to make themselves right with God through the sacrificial system, all foreshadowing what Christ would come and do. And so they acted as a testimony in the world of what sin was, who sin was against, and how to deal with it. Jumping down to verse 19, when Paul says, the law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. And we're going to come back next week. We're going to pick up with verse 19 and talk a little more fully about it. But for now, I want to focus on this part. It was given because of transgressions. What I didn't understand as an Adventist, and which actually I didn't fully understand how to think about until studying for this podcast and studying some other commentators, including S. Lewis Johnson, whom you just referred to, is that the idea of a transgression is that something has to be transgressed. Something known has to be trampled. There has to be a rule or a boundary or a law. And when somebody deliberately or even undeliberately just accidentally breaks that law, that's a transgression against a law. And that's what didn't exist before the law was given. Of course, Israel was full of sin. Think about how they grumbled right after walking through the Red Sea. Their ingratitude, their demands that Moses returned them to Egypt. That was sin. But there was nothing in their life that would define their sin. What they really were exhibiting was their depravity. And the law was given to reveal their nature so that they would keep bumping into the broken laws and rules of God, and they would see they're offending, like you said, offending God. And when I, when I thought about this, I realized this goes to the heart of what I think obscures the gospel in so many ways from an Adventist worldview, because I did not believe in depravity. Adventists actually do not teach depravity. They teach that man has inherited sinful tendencies that kind of come in through the gene pool coming down from Adam, that even Jesus had these inherited sinful tendencies from Mary's gene pool. That's not depravity, and that's not the nature of man. We learn in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that we're all born dead in sin. And that's what happened with Adam in the garden. He died. And from then on, it says in Genesis 4, when he had Seth, he had a son in his image. He was depraved. He was depraved and he had to learn to trust God. That's all of us. People who don't understand that they're depraved have an arrogance, especially if they have a law. 
Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything more arrogant than the way I thought of myself as an Adventist. Now, I didn't feel arrogant. I felt anxious and often depressed, but I believed I had the truth. I knew the Sabbath. I knew that the Sabbath was for all mankind and that that would be the mark that would indicate that I trusted God and believed in Him and was serving Him when He came back. That's the mark that would say, I'm ready to be saved. If I can manage to keep the Sabbath and, you know, in other ways, honor the law, but especially the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. The arrogance, the spiritual arrogance of thinking you have more truth than anybody else in the world, except those who see it your way. A law cannot demonstrate righteousness or make us righteous. We have to repent of our depravity. And that's why the law was given to show Israel they were by nature unable to please God and they were to be driven to repentance. That makes me think of what you said last week, that you used to agonize over your coffee drinking and you're cleaning the floors. And that kind of posture that we've all had as Adventists, I think, is arrogant in itself. Our greatest problem in life is caffeine. Yeah. Our greatest problem is the floor cleaning. And like you mentioned, it didn't even occur to you that the way that you were interacting with your sons was sin. And we all have piles of sin that we've had to come to terms with when we've come to faith and God's opened our eyes to it. And we've had to grieve and encounter that as we walk with Him. And it is much worse than whether or not we're guarding the Sabbath properly or, you know, we were prepared in time for, you know, I almost said Sunday school. I love it when that happens. (laughs) You know, those little things that make us feel shame and guilty as Adventists, Mm -hmm. they're blinding us to our real sin. They're blinding us to our real nature. And leaving us feeling like, well, we're really not that bad. And if God knows my heart, he knows I really wanted to get those things right. And we can get pretty arrogant and and actually delusional because we miss what real sin is. Yes. We miss our need. And one of the things that I learned from, from Gary years ago was when you're dealing with unbelieving family, you need to pray that they will know their need. And so that self-righteousness, we have to pray that that gets removed so that we can know our need. And that's what the law did. Yes. That's how the law came in and it began to reveal their need. And do you see what a perfect deception it is to have a religion built on law? Mm -hmm. To say that when you accept Jesus, now you have the power to keep the law and in keeping the law, you will come to know God. Mm -hmm. That is such heresy, Nikki. It's exactly backwards. The law is to show us that we need to repent We need to acknowledge before God that we have absolutely no spiritual life in us and that no matter how much we want to please God, we are unable. The law reveals that we are doomed sinners. That's all it does, and that's all it was given to do. It did foreshadow the sacrifice needed. It did foreshadow that someone was going to come and pay that sufficient sacrifice. But the law itself was designed to bring people to the need of a savior and to despair of themselves. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, (laughs) no one knew their need as clearly as Israel did, because every time they sinned or every time they became unclean for whatever reason, they had to go and they had to do their ceremonial cleansing. They had to have their sacrifices. They had to participate in the killing of animals. And they knew how important that was 
to remain right with God, they were constantly encountering their need for something else to come in and fix it. They couldn't do it. Yes, and think how impacting it was for them that every time they sinned, an innocent lamb or calf or bull had to die right in front of them. It had to be killed because they sinned. My, there'd be no way to impact a person more severely than that with the truth of who they are and that they were unable to stop the slaughter around them. The slaughter was God's provision so they would know they needed blood sacrifice for their sins, their own blood or the blood of a substitute. So we have this system that shows us our need and foreshadows God's provision. And you have this church on the other side of God's provision. They've heard the gospel and they've apparently believed because Paul implies here that they've received the spirit and they're going back and they're looking at this system and they're being pulled back into feeling obligated to be a part of this system by these false teachers on the basis of Moses. They've made an an idol out of Moses yeah, and out of the Mosaic covenant. And they're imposing it on these Gentiles. And so Paul is fighting for their life here. And he does this incredible job of separating that system from God's plan in terms of the promises being given to the Gentiles. Yes. And what he's really saying here is, you Gentiles and all who believe on this side of the cross, you are being ushered into reconciliation with God, into relationship with Him, into His family, into being made alive on the basis of Abraham, not on the basis of Moses. It's the promises to Abraham that you're receiving. You are becoming God's people based on the promises to Abraham, which preceded the law, and the law has no part with the promises. The law came and functioned simultaneously during the time of Israel underneath the overarching covenant of Abraham, but it was not part of it. It was another provision designed to show man who he was so that they would embrace the Savior when he came. So righteousness, walking in accord with what God requires in the new covenant is to believe. It's faith. That's all. That's how righteousness comes to us, by faith. Believe God. And God says, here is my gospel. This is my son. This is what he's done. This is what you're invited into. Believe And you don't have to look back at circumcision. You don't have to look back at Sabbath keeping. Now you look forward and he gives us his word to flesh out what righteous living looks like. Yeah. And it's only something that those who've been born again can actually participate in because it involves faith and understanding that our temptations are things we bring to the Lord in faith. And he gives us new desires. He gives us the ability to make new decisions. And I just want to say, the way Ellen White taught about the law makes it impossible for an Adventist ever to see it this way. These are just a few brief quotes that she said. This first one is from Signs of the Times, 1893, October 2. She said, The blind teachers of this age who seek to turn the people away from the law of God tell the people that the law is Jewish, given only to the Jews, and spoken only for their observance. Where is their authority for such a statement? And I say, right here. (laughs) Galatians 3 is very, very clear. 
It's only for the Jews and we who believe are not to go back to that law. And then she goes on, the Lord gave his law before there was a Jew in the world. Heavenly intelligences were governed by God's law before man was created, and the Sabbath was blessed and set apart for holy use immediately after God had made the world and had rested from his work of creation. And I want to just turn that right back on her and say, and where is your scriptural support for that? Hmm. She said also in Signs at the Times, 1878, March 14, the law of God existed before the creation of man or else Adam could not have sinned. No, Adam sinned by disobeying the one command God gave him. He didn't believe that what God said was absolutely true. And when questioned by a snake vicariously by watching his wife, he didn't step up and say, God has said, I may not understand it, but God has said, and I believe him. She also said, The Sabbath is not Jewish in its origin. It was instituted in Eden before there were such a people known as the Jews. And this is from a letter of 1894. Absolutely not. There is no Sabbath mentioned until Exodus 16. And that seventh day that God sanctified and blessed was his finished work. The day he ceased, his ceasing was blessed perfect and holy. His finished work had nothing that could be added to it. And the Sabbath was a shadow of God's finished work and pointed forward to the finished work of Christ. It's not surprising that we with an Adventist background and a great controversy worldview have struggled so much with these texts. Ellen White taught us a lie. The law is temporary. The law had a beginning and an end, as we've seen in this passage. It is God's promises that last. The law was given for a purpose, for a time, for a people, as a shadow, foreshadowing the righteousness of God, which is apart from law. We cannot try to put the law into this passage. That's what the Judaizers were doing. And that's what Paul was really so angry about. I have a quote here from Story of Hope, which I think is a paraphrase of the Great Controversy. And it's taken from page 41, and I want to read it because it shows further that Ellen White taught that the Ten Commandments were the total law of God, Ten Commandments, and that they were taught all the way from the beginning of mankind. She says, Adam taught his descendants the law of God, which was handed down to the faithful through successive generations. The continual violation of God's law called for a flood of water on the earth. Noah and his family preserved the law, and for their right doings, they were saved in the ark by a miracle of God. Noah taught his descendants the Ten Commandments. From Adam onward, the Lord preserved a people for himself in whose heart was his law. He says of Abraham, he obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So we see her interchanging God's commandments, his statutes, his laws with the Ten Commandments. It's all the same thing, which is why when you hear former Adventists talk or Adventists talk and they talk about God's commandments or his law, it's always about the Decalogue. I know that gets confusing for Christians because when they talk about the law of God, they're referring to his all his word. Yes. Unless you're referring to the Mosaic law, but it's all interchangeable in Adventism. It's the same thing. So they were being taught the Ten Commandments. And I want to ask, how 
were they being taught the Ten Commandments if God had not yet outstretched his arm and taken them out of Egypt? Right. And where does it say that the Ten Commandments were taught by Noah? Where does it say any of this? I want to say, Ellen White or whoever is representing Ellen White, where are your chapters and verses from Scripture to support this? Nikki, Adventism teaches a false worldview, a false view of Scripture, and it lies to us about what God did and what God said. If we read the Bible and take it at face value, understanding what it meant to the first audience, believing the words mean what the words say, and reading it in context, we will never come up with the eternal Ten Commandments. We will never come up with Ellen White's great controversy. What we will see is that God made promises to Abraham, and that we who believe are ushered into the church, into the body of Christ, through Abraham, not through Moses. And if we try to drag Moses along, we are in violation of God's provision for us and of what he did in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. He died. He broke the sentence of death that was on us when we believe in him. And if we go back and take the law, as Paul will say further on in this book, we fall from grace. And can I just add to that? You said that if we read the Bible, we're never going to find an eternal law in there, in the Ten Commandments. If we read Ellen White, we're never going to find that the Mosaic Covenant was temporal. That's right. We're never going to find the truth. If we're reading Ellen and then we read the scripture, everything we know about reality is layered over what we're reading when we read the Bible. We're going to glaze over. That's right. We're going to glaze over. So for those who are trying to find truth, you cannot go wrong putting Ellen White's books down and only reading scripture. And asking God to teach you what it is he already knows he wants you to know from his word. And if you haven't done that, if you're still struggling to see the gospel in the Bible, ask the Lord to show you what his word really says and put Ellen away. She is lying. She has lied, and her lies will be in our heads until we commit to letting her go and trusting that Jesus will not trick us. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. You can also find a place to donate to the ministry if you'd like to come alongside Lamb with your financial support. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, share it with others, and please leave a review wherever you listen. And join us next week as we look at verses 19 through 22 and listen as Paul teaches us further that we can never be righteous by keeping any part of the law. We'll see you then.